Well, you guys can turn to 1 Corinthians. This semester we'll be looking at the book of 1 Corinthians together. We'll spend all of the fall in it and a little bit of the spring. Really excited to get into this book with you guys. Uh, before we jump into 1 Corinthians this morning, let me share with you one of my memories when I was a child. Growing up every summer, one of my favorite things to do as a kid was we would join my cousins and we'd go to Galveston. We'd spend a few days in Galveston and I loved going out, swimming out with my cousins as far as we could. So to the second, third, fourth sandbar, depending on how old we were, till you could barely just touch the ground with, with your toes. And we'd swim out there and then we'd ride waves back and we'd swim back out there and we'd have so much fun riding the waves out there. But there was always this, this moment that was a little bit terrifying when, when you would look up from playing in the waves and you would look back at the shoreline and you would suddenly realize that you don't recognize any of the houses anymore. You don't recognize anything you're seeing. Your rental house is way up the beach. You didn't realize it, but the current had carried you far down the beach. It's actually a pretty strong undertow in Galveston. And so we'd start trying to swim back. We'd swim against the current, against the waves, try to swim back so we were even with the rental house. And by the time we got all the way back, they were just totally exhausted. We were done for the day. And, and that's where I learned that it is really hard to swim against the current. That's true at the beach. It is true of life in general. It is incredibly hard to swim against the current. I learned that in life in junior high band. Don't know about the school district you grew up in, but in my school district, every sixth grader had a choice. You either sang in the choir or you played an instrument in the band, and I didn't like singing. It wasn't my thing, and so I decided to pick up the trumpet, and it kind of tortured my parents, but it got me out of singing in the choir, and so I, I joined junior high band. There were a lot of good things about being in the band, but there were also some, some kind of negative things, particularly all the unsupervised hangout time before and after rehearsal, and, and you take and you mix together unsupervised hangout time with all the hormones raging through junior high boys and you get a lot of ugly stuff real quick. It gets really bad, really fast. And I remember just all these, all these horribly cruel jokes that people were telling one another, uh, a lot of foul language and the put-downs. Junior high boys, man, they can tear each other up, just putting down anyone who wasn't popular. I remember being shocked by that because I grew up in a Christian home. I was really sheltered. And so I was just blown away by how, these, how cruel these boys could be with their language. And so I thought, well, well I'll push back against that because I see the direction that they're going. It's not the direction that God has called us to go. So I'll say something. And so I said something and it didn't work out well. It didn't go well for me because as soon as I called them out on their language and their cruelty, it just made me the new target. I was the fresh meat in the room and they just tore me up. And, and that's when I learned that it's really hard to swim against the current and it's a whole lot easier to just keep your mouth shut and go with the flow. It's a whole lot easier in life to just keep your mouth shut and go with the flow. That's not just true in junior high band. That's true in all of life. Now, it may not feel that way here at A&M. You're surrounded by thousands of other Christians who are going generally the same way as you, but one day you will graduate and you will have to leave. And you will leave and you will go get a job somewhere where all of a sudden you will look up and realize that the world around you is headed in a different direction that you want to go, the direction that Jesus has called you to go. I remember uh, taking my first job after A&M was an engineering job up on the northeast coast and, and working at this company and realizing one day that at this whole company, uh, I couldn't find any other Christians who wanted to walk with Jesus. No one. I, I was in a minority of one 
person. Everyone else was going the way of the world. So here I am at this company and the current, the the current that surrounded me was a current that was full of pride and arrogance and disbelief and immorality and selfishness and actually a lot of cruelty. It was a lot like junior high band. I looked up and I saw that the currents in the world around me were going the opposite direction. And I realized it's really hard to fight those currents. It's really hard to live in a minority of one where you're the only one who wants to follow Christ. It's so much easier to just keep your mouth shut and go with the flow. Now that is exactly what the believers in Corinth had chosen to do. They lived in the midst of a culture that was going in a direction opposite of what God had called them to go. They knew it was hard to fight against the current. They knew it was difficult, that it was a lot of a sacrifice to have to walk with Jesus. And so they just decided, let's go the easy way. Let's keep our mouths shut and go with the flow. That's what motivated Paul to write this book, the whole book that you're looking at, all of 1 Corinthians. There's a lot of different stuff that Paul will talk about. It all boils down to one problem. The believers in Corinth had chosen the easy path to keep their mouth shut, to go with the flow, to blend into the culture around them until there was no difference left between how the Corinthians acted and behaved and how the believers acted and behaved. And so Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians to call them out. That's the big idea of the book of Corinth. Paul is calling them out of Corinth. He's calling them to swim upstream against the flow of the culture around them. So I want you to look with me. Let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 2, it's the Church of God, which is at Corinth. These people lived in the city of Corinth, and God didn't have a problem with that. God wanted them to live in Corinth. He didn't want them to pack their bags and head out into the desert somewhere. He, he wanted them to live in Corinth. It was not a problem that they were living in Corinth. I like how Gordon Fee puts it when you think about the book of 1 Corinthians. The, the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that too much of Corinth was in the church. That's the issue. Not that they geographically are located in Corinth, but that the attitudes and behaviors of Corinth had come into the church and filled their hearts. Okay, so it wasn't that they were in Corinth, it was Corinth was in them. They were too much like the culture around them. And so Paul calls them out. He calls them to be different. And you see that in, in, a, in a word that's repeated in verse 2. You probably don't realize that it's repeated because it looks different in English, but it's the same in Greek. It's, it's the word hagias. It means sanctified or saints. Anytime you see sanctified, saint, or holy, it's all the same word. Sanctified or saints, it means to be separate, to be distinct, to be set apart, to be holy. That's the basic idea of when you think about yourself as, as a saint. Okay, it means that you are called to live a distinct life. You are set apart from the world around you. Paul is reminding them, God has called you to be a saint, to be sanctified, to be set apart from the world around you, to live a distinct, a different life. That's the, the basic call of God on your life, to be different to be a saint, to be sanctified. So God had called them to be different. He had called them out of the lifestyle of Corinth. He called them to live a distinctly Christian life in the midst of first century Corinth. But what what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, to answer that question, I gotta tell you a little bit about Corinth. 
So let me introduce you to the city of Corinth in 54 AD when Paul wrote this letter. Today, there's not a whole lot of Corinth left, just some ruins, just some archaeologically interesting blocks out in Greece. Uh, But back in Paul's day, it was actually the wealthiest, most important city in all of Greece. It was a huge city for back then. It was filled with extravagant temples, beautiful monuments, athletic stadiums, huge government buildings, and massive marketplaces like the malls of back then where they... They did a lot of business and trade, and and Corinth had a lot of business, and it had a lot of trade. It was really important economically because of where it was located. The city of Corinth was on the most valuable piece of land in the ancient world, and here's why. Here here is Corinth. This is a a map of Greece, of the nation of Greece as it's thought of today. Corinth is on that little tiny speck of land that combines the north and the south, so it had water on both sides, a, a harbor to the east, a harbor to the west. Okay, so to the west, that's how you get to Rome. To the east, that's how you get to Asia. Corinth is located right in between. And the reason that this city matters so much is because in the ancient world, if you had goods, if you had products that you wanted to move from east to west or west to east, you had two choices in the ancient world. You could either go all the way around Greece, which in the ancient world was really dangerous. They had little tiny ships that would easily not make that journey. So it was a very dangerous journey to go all the way around Greece, or you could just go through Corinth. Because the Corinthians had this neat little thing that they had built, actually, before the Romans even arrived. They built a six-kilometer-long road from the eastern port to the western port, a really good road that rollers could move on so that they could move not only goods and products, but entire ships. So ships showed up, put it on the road, move it to the other side. It's like the Panama Canal of the ancient world. And so all the goods, all the ships, and all the money of the ancient world went through Corinth. So Corinth was a fabulously wealthy city incredibly wealthy. If you controlled the business, you had more money than you could count. There was so much money in Corinth, it was just ripe for the taking by anyone smart enough, skilled enough, hardworking enough, and lucky enough to grab it. So Corinth, if if you want to think about Corinth in modern terms, I think the easiest way to think of it is kind of combination of modern New York and Las Vegas. It's all the money and power of New York combined with all the risk-taking and luxury of Las Vegas and all the immorality. Because in Corinth, if you had money, you could have anything you wanted. No one would say no to you. Okay, so Corinth, it's an it's a ancient version of New York plus Las Vegas mixed together. So that's Corinth. Now, now that you know a little bit about the city, let me introduce you to the values of Corinth, the, the attitudes, the beliefs, the ways of thinking that dominated life in Corinth. Everybody believed these. Everybody held to these three values uh, that drove life in ancient Corinth. First thing that guided the life of, of a person in ancient Corinth was the belief that all gods are valid and you better agree with us. All gods are valid, and you better agree with that statement. So in Corinth, religion was like a melting pot. You didn't believe in one god. You just combined all the gods that everybody believed in. It's kind of like a buffet. That's like a, how I like to think about religion in Corinth. It was a huge religious buffet. You go take a little of this god and a little of that god, a little of this religion, a little of that religion. The more, the better, because the Corinthians, they were risk takers. They liked to hedge their bets. Why worship one God when you can worship a hundred gods? Better chance you'll get the right God somewhere mixed in there. So they just mixed all religions, all gods together at this huge religious buffet. It was actually interesting. A lot of their temples were dedicated to multiple gods. Any god that wants to show up, he can have a place in our temple. We'll take them all. Okay, so that, that idolatrous worship of every god, it wasn't just something you did on Sundays. It was woven into the fabric of life in Corinth. So 
every festival, every holiday, every event, every building, every cut of meat you go buy in the store had been dedicated to one or more of those gods. They just dedicated everything to the gods because idolatry was part of society in Corinth. They worshiped every god and that was just accepted. No one questioned that. That was just the way of life in Corinth. And so it was really odd when Christians showed up in the city of Corinth and said, there is one God and you should worship only him. That, that was actually the one and only belief that wasn't acceptable in Corinth. You can believe anything you want. You can worship any gods you want except a God who claims your exclusive allegiance. That's not allowed. So the Corinthians actually, actually called Christians haters of mankind. And get this, they called them atheists because the Christians denied all, this, all these traditional buffet of gods that were out there. Corinthians hated the Christians. They would not allow them to hold to the existence of one God who claimed absolute allegiance. Okay, so in Corinth, all gods are valid and you better agree. You can believe anything you want as long as you take all things as valid. That's the first value they held to. Second value that guided life in ancient Corinth is all that matters in life is status. All that matters in life is status. Corinth is what we today, we call an honor-shame society. So your life was defined by your honor or shame in the eyes of your community. And everything you do and every relationship you have either heightens your honor or shames, lowers your honor in the eyes of society. And so in Corinth, everyone had the same goal in life. Your goal in life was to do anything you could to heighten your status, to climb the ladder of status towards honor, away from shame. And everything in your else in your life was expendable on, for the sake of status. So your integrity, you can totally expend that if it gets you more honor, if it gets you more status. Your friendships, you can expend those. Those are expendable for the sake of status. Your religious beliefs, expendable for the sake of status. It, every relationship that a person had in Corinth was evaluated through the grid of status. So a person who brings honor to you, you love on them. You brown nose them. You do anything you can to buddy up and rub shoulders with them. A person who has less status than you, you shun them. You avoid them at all costs. A person who challenges your status, you destroy them by any means necessary. All that mattered in, in Corinth was status, was climbing the ladder of status towards higher honor and away from shame. As David Garland wrote in a, one of the commentaries that's out there on 1 Corinthians, to use terms from American culture, Schmoozing, massaging a superior's ego, rubbing shoulders with the powerful, pulling strings, scratching each other's backs, dragging rivals' names through the mud, all described what was required to attain, to attain status in Corinth. So all that mattered in your life was status, climbing the ladder of status. So that's the second value that guided life in ancient Corinth. Third value that guided life is that greed is good. In Corinth, society was highly stratified, so there was a huge gap between the haves and the have-nots. And in Corinth, that was affirmed. They actually praised that gap in, in income inequality because in Corinth, they believed that those who are successful deserve to enjoy all the luxury money can buy, and those who are not successful deserve nothing but to be forgotten, be impoverished, and eventually die. So there was no charity in Corinth. You don't give money to the poor. The poor have failed. They have failed to succeed in life, so all you want for them is to die and leave. 
There was no charity because all anybody cared about was climbing the ladder of success, attaining more wealth for themselves. They believed if you have wealth, you should spend it all on yourself. That's the basic assumption in the city of Corinth. No one took care of anyone else unless it would be good for them. The only reason I would give charity to you is if it somehow increases my status in society. It's no real charity, no real care for the disadvantaged. Okay, so you, you look at the city of Corinth as it existed in Paul's day, and what you're looking at is a city that was dedicated to idolatry, that was ruled by selfish ambition, that was driven by fame, and that was filled with luxury and pleasure for those who could afford it. But for everyone else, for those who couldn't afford it, it was a cruel and harsh place that chewed you up and spit you out. So in other words, when you look at Corinth, what you should realize really quickly is it's a lot like what our world is becoming today. You look at Corinth and you see a lot of uncanny parallels. The direction that our society, that our world is headed, you see it in Corinth. Every God is acceptable except the one God who says, I alone am God. You can't believe that. You see a society that is consumed with the quest for celebrity and fame and status. That's our society today. You see greater and greater inequality between classes because no one cares for each other. They're so consumed with materialism and selfishness and greed. You look at Corinth and you realize that is the direction that our world is headed today. And so when Paul calls them out of Corinth, he is calling us out of the world we live in. Are we willing to live lives that are distinct, that are different, that do not fit into these values, the values of our world? Are we willing to be different? Are we willing to swim upstream? That's what the book of 1 Corinthians is about. The rest of the book will tell you how. It will talk about the upstream life and how it affects your relationships and your sexuality and your goals in life. Everything about you. Paul, get into the details. But for this morning, what he wants us to think about is simply, are we willing to swim upstream? Are we willing to live lives that are different, that are distinctly Christian? But that's really hard to do. Really hard to swim against the current. It's really hard to stick your neck out. There's a big price to pay sacrifice that you have to make. You will be ridiculed. You'll be rejected. You'll be alone. Are you willing to pay the price to swim upstream, to live a distinctly Christian life in the midst of a world that's headed the opposite direction? That's hard to do, and so Paul gives us motivation. That's where the book goes next. In the next six verses, Paul tells them why. Why should you be willing to stick your neck out? Why be willing to open your mouth and speak against the direction culture is going? Why live a different life when it is so painful and so hard? Paul gives motivation. He tells us why in the next six verses. Look with me at verse four. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So why should we swim upstream? Why not just keep your mouth shut and go with the flow? It's so much easier. Why swim upstream? Well, the big idea is right there at the beginning of what we read in verse 4. The primary reason why you should swim upstream is because of God's grace. Paul gives thanks for, for the grace of God that has been given us in Christ Jesus. What is grace? We talked about that last week. Big idea of grace. Simple definition. Grace is getting something good you don't deserve. Paul wants them to remember what do you deserve from God. You deserve punishment. 
You deserve death because you've sinned. You've not done what God has called you to do. Instead of giving you what you deserve, God gives you grace. He gives you goodness. He blesses you richly. And it's because God has so richly blessed you with his grace that it is reasonable to follow God upstream even when it costs you in this life. Okay, so the, the grace of God is the reason why it is worth the price to follow God's call upstream. But Paul doesn't want to leave it general. He wants to describe to them what does the grace of God mean in your life? What exactly are the gifts that God has given you that motivate you to swim upstream? And, and this is not an extensive or exhaustive list that Paul gives. That would take like the rest of the Bible to list everything good God gives you. He just mentions three things. Three gifts that God has given us in grace that, that make it reasonable for us to follow Jesus upstream even when it costs us. So let me walk you through these three gifts of grace. The first is significance. The gift of significance. Look with me in verse 5. And everything you are enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Not lacking in any gift. Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. These talents, these abilities, these skills that the Holy Spirit gives to every believer to allow each believer to serve and love the body of Christ in some significant way. And Paul mentions a couple spiritual gifts. Speech, that's any spiritual gift that has to do with human speech. So tongues, prophecy, teaching, preaching. Uh, he lists knowledge, that's the gift of wisdom. You, you know the right path even when others don't. Now he'll tell us later in the book that both of these gifts were getting abused in the church in Corinth. People were using them to drive their own ambition and pride. But that doesn't change the fact that the church in Corinth was a remarkably gifted community. Every person given a gift to serve the body in a significant way. Leave your finger in chapter 1 and turn to chapter 12 real quick. Let's look at this gift that Paul talks about that God has granted them. Chapter 12. Look with me in verse 7. Paul says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. Skip down to verse 11. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. What Paul is reminding us is that every believer in the church, regardless of their wealth, regardless of their status, regardless of their education level, has been given a, a gift, a skill, a talent, an ability by the Holy Spirit that allows them to serve the church in the world in a significant, a valuable way. So every single person here is equally gifted and, and equally able to serve the church in the world in a significant way. I want you to stop and realize how radical an idea that was in Corinthian society. Because who was valuable in Corinth? Only the wealthy. Only people of high status. Everyone else was completely worthless and forgettable. And yet Paul is saying here, in the church, all of us are equally valuable, equally worthwhile, because we've been gifted by God. That's a message that our world needs to hear because we live in a society where the valuable people, the worthwhile people, are the people that, that have money, that have looks, that have talent, that have success, that have achievements. They're the ones who are valuable. Everyone else is a loser. I'm, I'm praying and, and already a little bit anxious for my kids. My twins are four years old. They'll be starting school next year. And I know that when they start school, they will begin to hear this lie from the world. 
that your value, your worth as a person, as an individual, is based on your talent or your popularity or your looks. If you don't have those, then you're not valuable. I hate that lie. And so Julie and I are already trying to help our our kids understand that you are not valuable as a person because of what you do or how you look or how popular you are. You are valuable as a person because God made you valuable. Value is not something you earn. It's a gift your creator has already given you. God made you significant. You don't earn significance. It's yours. It's a gift out of God's grace. He has given you significance because he has gifted you in his Holy Spirit to serve and love the body of Christ in some significant and necessary way. Every person in this room is equally valuable and worthwhile to God, no matter of wealth or status. All of us were valuable and were worthwhile. Because God has given us the gift of significance so that we can serve one another in meaningful ways. That's the first gift that God gives. He gives you the gift of significance. You don't have to go out there and earn it. It's yours. Gift of God's grace. Second gift that God has given us, hope in a future to look forward to. Look with me, starting again in verse 7 of chapter 1. Let's pick it up where we left off. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. To swim upstream, to follow God's call, to live a distinct, a different life, it's going to be hard. There's going to be a cost. You are going to have to sacrifice things that you could have if you went with the flow in this world. But here's the deal. It's always easier to make a sacrifice if you have something good to look forward to, right? In life, it's always easier to to sacrifice something today if you have something good to look forward to tomorrow. That's why it's easier to study hard in the library all week when you have a home game to look forward to on the weekend, assuming the weather cooperates, right? It's something to look forward to. It makes a sacrifice easier. It's easier to push it in the gym when you know you have a date to look forward to. It's easier to work overtime at the office when you know you have a vacation to look forward to. Sacrifice is easier when you have something good to look forward to. And so Paul reminds them that we have something incredibly good to look forward to in the future. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back on the day of the Lord, Paul says, when he has revealed his revelation to the world. Jesus has come one time. He came in humility to die. He will come a second time, not in humility, but in power to be king, to rule over the world, to to conquer evil once and for all, to reward righteousness, to fix everything in the world that's broken. And, And for those of us who know Jesus, we will be, it says, blameless on that day. He will invite us into his kingdom. He will welcome us to his table to have fellowship and joy with him forever. Now, one of the most common questions that I'm asked as a pastor is, what is it actually gonna be like on that day? When we see Jesus, when we're in heaven, all that stuff coming in eternity, what's it gonna look like? And I say, I don't know. I, I don't know the details. Most of what's coming in the future is shrouded in mystery in the Bible. I only know a little bit. I only get glimpses when I look at the Bible. But let me share with you a couple of those glimpses, a couple passages that are really important to me in my life. When I'm called upon to make sacrifices, I think about Revelation 21. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah talked about the new heavens and the new earth too. One of my favorite verses in the book of Isaiah, chapter 35, verse 10. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion, the new Jerusalem, with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them like it's hunting them down. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Okay, so I, I don't know what the new heavens and the new earth are going to look like. There's so much I don't know. What I do know is that when you're there, when you're in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus, you will never feel pain again. You will never have sorrow. You will never have loneliness. There will not be a single thing that disappoints you. You will never know suffering or death again. All you will know for all the rest of time is joy and gladness, everlasting joy. And so if you want to think about what's it going to be like to be with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, I want you to think for a moment. I want you to remember, call to mind, the best day you have ever had. Best day you've ever had. So maybe it's the day you got married. Maybe it's the day you graduated. Maybe it's the day you accomplished something big. Maybe it was a day on a vacation. Best day you've ever had. Most pleasant, wonderful, happy, exciting day you've ever had. What I can tell you without doubt is that every day in heaven will be better than that day. How do I know? Because that day was part of this life, and in this life, on your very best day that you've ever had, at best, it's a 90% good day. Maybe 90%. Maybe that's too high. Because there's still at least 10% that disappoints you. There's still at least 10% of the day where you feel lonely or disappointed or sad or something doesn't live up to expectations. You will never feel that again on any day of heaven. Every day in heaven is 100% joy all the time. 100% satisfaction. So the very best day you have had so far in life, every day in heaven will be better. And so that's why you can make sacrifices in this life because you know this is not your best life. This is not where your happiness is. This is not where satisfaction is in this life. This life is just the opening act before the main event. Why do you go to a concert? For the main event. Opening act just lasts a little bit. Okay, it's done. Let's get on with the main event. Well, the new heavens and the new earth is an unending main event that will never stop blowing your socks off and will fill you with joy and excitement and exhilaration forever. That's what you have to look forward to. And in light of that, when you think about the future that is yours, it becomes much easier to make the sacrifices in this life that are required to follow Jesus upstream. God has given you a future to look forward to, and that gives you hope. That's the second gift that God has given us in grace. The third gift he's given us, the greatest gift of all, is the gift of his son as our Savior, our Lord, and our friend. If you want to know the big idea of a passage in the Bible, all you need to do is look for what's repeated. So look for a word or a phrase or an idea that is repeated more than everything else, and chances are very good that that's the big idea. So what's repeated more than anything else in this passage? Jesus. The name Jesus repeated eight times. The title Christ repeated nine times. The title Lord repeated six times. Jesus, either name, title, or pronoun, appears in every single verse in this passage because he is the main idea. 
He's the focus because Jesus is the source through which we receive God's grace. How is it that a holy, righteous God can give grace to sinful people like us. It's because Jesus came and died in our place. He took the punishment we deserved, then he rose from the dead, defeating death, so that God can give us all these good things. They all come to us through Jesus. Everything good in your life, you get it through Jesus. None of it comes any other way. It's all through Jesus, through trusting in him, believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so that you could be forgiven. That's how you receive God's grace. And for all of us who have trusted in Jesus, who have believed in him and received God's grace, Paul wants us to understand Jesus, he's not just your savior, he's not just your Lord, but he's your friend. Verse nine, I love it. In the future, you have fellowship with Jesus. You have fellowship, you have friendship, you have a relationship with Jesus, the king, the Lord of heaven and earth. He is your friend now and forever. And and I want you to think for a moment about how ironic that would be for the Corinthians. Because what did Corinthian people do all the time, every hour of every day? What were those men and women doing? They were sacrificing anything for the sake of status. Anything to to rise the ladder towards a celebrity culture. They would give up anything. Friends, integrity, beliefs, anything to rub shoulders with the rich and powerful. That was their greatest desire in life. And yet here's Paul saying that the richest, most powerful guy who has ever lived wants to be your friend for free. Nothing you have to sacrifice. He just wants to be your friend. It's an absolutely free gift of grace. That's why it is so foolish and ridiculous when Christians, when we get caught up in the celebrity culture that we live in. This quest for fame, this quest for people to know our name, to recognize us. How ridiculous that is because we already know the creator and he is our friend. The king of heaven and earth knows our name. And so I want you to just make this really practical. If today you are called by Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie inviting you over for dinner tonight, I want you to recognize that that is less of an honor than the honor you receive every time you close your eyes and pray. Because Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, they're, they're actors. What is that compared to the creator of the universe? And yet every time you bow your head and pray, you are talking to the creator The richest, most powerful, greatest celebrity who's ever lived, he is your friend. There's nothing on earth that can compete with that. So who cares how many friends you have on Facebook? Who cares if you ever get on TV? Who cares how many people know your name? Because all that matters is the one guy who does know your name and that he's the king. That's all that matters. You are known and loved and accepted by Jesus. God has given you the gift of his son, your savior, your creator, your Lord, to be your friend now and forever. And so you look at these gifts that God has given us. In grace, we didn't deserve them. We have not earned them. We do not merit them. They're a free gift. You look at these gifts that God has given us. You add them all up. And what you should recognize as you look at these things, that he's he's gifted you with significance and with a future to look forward to and with his son as your friend forever. When you look at that, you should realize, you should recognize that as followers of Christ, we are the richest, most blessed, luckiest people who have ever lived on this planet. You, if, if you know Jesus, you are the richest, most blessed, luckiest person on the planet. Doesn't matter how big your paycheck is. Doesn't matter how many Facebook friends you have. You just gotta take it on faith. 
You are the most blessed, rich, lucky person in the world because God has chosen you for grace. In Jesus Christ, all of these gifts are yours. And so when you think about why should I swim upstream, why should I fight the currents of the world around me, why should I follow Jesus when it requires sacrifice, when it will bring ridicule, why? Because Jesus has already given you all of this grace. He has blessed you so richly. In light of all of that grace, in light of all of those blessings, it is reasonable to follow Jesus upstream even if no one else will. That's the point of the book of 1 Corinthians. And so I want us to to end by asking ourselves some questions. By thinking about our willingness to follow Jesus upstream, I want you to ask yourself, am I willing to follow Jesus upstream? And as you think about that, first I want you to ask, do I believe? Do, Do I believe that I am one of the richest, most blessed people on the planet? Do do I believe, am I willing to believe that because I know Jesus, I'm as high as you can get on the social ladder already. There's no higher for me to go. I am incredibly richly blessed. You need to believe that because you will not follow Jesus upstream if you think you're poor and forgotten. You'll only follow him upstream if you believe that you're rich and blessed in him. So are you willing to believe that you are richly blessed If you find that hard to believe, if you just feel like you are unlucky or not blessed or forgotten in life, I would challenge you, the way you grow your belief that you are richly blessed is you practice the discipline of gratitude. Just like Paul, you give thanks. If you'll give thanks to God day after day, it will grow your belief that you are indeed blessed. That's how gratitude works. It grows faith. So begin to practice the discipline of gratitude. Give thanks to God every day for the things he's doing in your life, for the things he's protected you from. Thank him most of all for the gift of his son who makes all of this possible. Give thanks. That will grow your belief that you are among the richest, most blessed, luckiest people who's ever lived. So are you willing to believe that you are richly blessed? Second question to ask yourself, are you willing to to sacrifice The status and the wealth that you could have if you just go with the flow, are you willing to sacrifice that to follow Jesus upstream? As you look at your life, I want to challenge you to think, is is there something in your life, maybe some possession or some relationship or, or some goal that you just love? It's just precious to you and you just can't imagine giving it up for the sake of Jesus. Well, I'm I'm not gonna ask you to give it up this morning. All I'm gonna ask you to do is pray. Begin to pray that God would soften your hold on that thing, on that possession, on that goal, on that relationship, that he would soften your hold so that you would be willing to let it go if Jesus calls you to do that. I don't know whether he will, but pray that God will work in your heart to so grow your love for Jesus, so grow your devotion to him that you would be willing to let go of anything for the sake of following him. Are you willing to make that sacrifice to follow Jesus upstream? Third question to ask yourself, Will I swim upstream even if no one else does? Will I swim upstream even if no one else does? It's easier to swim upstream in this town. Uh, 10,000 people show up to Bible study. You're surrounded by people who love Jesus. And so it's, it's much easier, but one day you're gonna go from this place and you're gonna look around and you see there's no one else. It's just me. So when you're in the minority, a minority of one who wants to follow Jesus, the question is, will you follow him upstream? Even if no one else does, you look around, you don't see anybody else who wants to honor Jesus with their lives. You don't see anyone else who is willing to swim upstream. Will you still follow Jesus even though no one joins you? I want you to begin to to pray 
that God would grow your faith this semester and that he would grow your love for Jesus this semester to the point that you would be willing to follow Jesus even if no one else joins you. If it's time to go to church on Sunday morning and there's one person there, will you be the one? Will you follow Jesus when no one else will? That's the challenge of the book of 1 Corinthians. So I invite you to be praying that God would begin a work in in not just your hearts, but all, all of us, all of our hearts as a family, that God would begin a work in us to grow our love for Jesus and our devotion to him to the extent that we will be willing to live distinctly Christian lives. We'll be willing to swim against the currents of society and follow Jesus upstream, even if it costs us. Please join me in praying for that. God, we come before you. And we thank you first and foremost for the gift of your son. We thank you that Jesus died for our sins, even though we were not worthy and will never be worthy. We thank you that he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death and Satan so that we could be set free. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you not only that he is our savior, but we thank you that he is our king, that one day he is going to return and fix all that is broken with this world and that gives us hope, that gives us a future to look forward to and we praise you and we thank you that that Jesus wants to be called our friend, that he wants to, to know us and have a relationship with us. He who is creator wants to know and be with us. We thank you for that. We thank you that you've given us meaningful significance in our life, that you've given us these relationships, that you've blessed us so richly and grace. Lord, we affirm that now. We, we, we confess and we ask you to forgive us for those moments when we fall prey to the lie that we are not blessed, that we are unlucky, that we are left out, that life is awful. I pray that you would forgive us for believing that and instead help us to believe that in Christ we are so richly blessed. Thank you for Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would, through your spirit, begin to work in our hearts to soften our hold on the things of this world and grow our love for Jesus. We pray, Lord, that this semester that you would work in us individually and as a community to so grow our love for Jesus that we would be willing to follow him upstream against the currents of this society even when that costs us, even when there is a price to pay, even when we have to sacrifice the status and wealth and comfort that we could have in this world. I pray that you would grow us so that we would be willing to follow Jesus upstream no matter the cost even if it's just us and Jesus alone, that we would follow him. Grow our faith and our love in Jesus so that we're willing to follow him no matter the cost. We pray, Lord, that you would work in us so that as a, as a community, as a family, that we would so model Jesus to the world that when they look at Grace Bible Church, they would see Jesus, your son. We pray all this for the fame and glory and praise of him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks so much, Blake. I I love your message this morning. And it is our hope here that you would recognize the hope that you have in Christ Jesus and that you would be so wrapped up in his love and his grace that you would swim upstream against anything, regardless of the cost. We have a few things going on here in the life of our body outside of uh, Sunday morning. The first is I want to address college students. I'm thankful, excited that you're here. Also, don't forget, during this same time, at the 11 o'clock hour, straight out through the foyer, on the, uh, through the doors over there, we have our college class. 
uh, which this, uh, the way our college class works is a little bit different than I know some places, but you come, there's a little time of worship, it's about a short 20-minute message, and then we have groups of tables that students are around with host um, adult couples, and we walk through and have dialogue with each other, and it's, it's a great opportunity to partic- participate in. And this semester, the college group is going through the Song of Solomon, and um, it's a great book. Encourage you to dive in. Probably some adults will dive in, knowing that it's Song of Solomon. It's a great deal. We also have other grace groups that are going on um, throughout the week, in the evening, and early in the morning, and on the weekends. And if you want to know more about those or find certain ways that you can get plugged into those, uh, find somebody here up front after the service or out in the foyer. You'll be able to identify them. They'll have this lovely lime green sticker on their shirt. Uh, So find them. We'd love to help get you further connected into the life of this body. Also, in our nursery on Sunday morning and also on Wednesday morning, we could use some more volunteers. We also have a few paid positions. So if you're interested in doing that and helping out there, you can go straight out these doors. And there's a big red desk on the foyer where you can find more information. Also, um, our youth group, if you're interested in working with high school students or junior high students, you can uh, join us. And um, Jared Perry's right here. He's our youth pastor. He'd love to hear from you. And then also, finally, up here on the stage, not only this one, but other stages we have here at Grace Bible Church, we could use some more help with our worship ministry. And if you would love, if you want to be part of that team, you can email us at uh, it's worship at grace-bible.org. And we would love to have you come and try out and uh, hopefully be on one of our stages. We'd, we really need the help. Um, it's a great morning. I'm excited you're here. Welcome to Grace Bible Church, particularly after a wonderful night like last night. How, could it, how can it not be a great day? And the great thing about a, a game that goes extra long is I didn't have to change clothes. I just, I just come straight here and are here this morning. But continue to enjoy the day. Continue to enjoy the day with one another. So on your way out, as you leave, greet those around you and uh, find somebody to talk to. And maybe just go have lunch with them. It would be a great morning. Thank you for being here.